welcome to the Cops and Writers Podcast. On this show, you will learn how to write the best crime-related novel or screenplay possible. Your host, Sergeant Patrick O'Donnell, worked the streets in one of the nation's largest police departments for over 25 years. Ride along with O'Donnell and his expert guests as they help you navigate the oftentimes confusing and misunderstood world of law enforcement. O'Donnell and his guests on this show do not represent any law enforcement agency. The content of this show is not meant to be legal advice. If you think you need a lawyer, you probably do. Hey, Cops and Writers, thanks for being here with us today for another episode of the Cops and Writers podcast. I'm Patrick O'Donnell, and I'll be your host for today's show. My first order of business is to thank those of you who are patrons of the show, most notably Kathleen Donnelly, Richard Rybecki, J.K. Doan, and Kathleen Kovacic. Your generosity helps pay for the software, equipment, and my time producing this show. Yes, you too can become a patron for less than a cup of coffee or a pint of Guinness. Just go over to patreon.com forward slash cops and writers, all one word. I would also like to thank all of you who purchased my books in the Cops and Writers series available on Amazon. I have a special treat for you guys today. It was my honor and privilege to interview New York Times bestselling author, podcaster, and former Navy SEAL Jack Carr. Jack Carr led special operations teams as a team leader, platoon commander, troop commander, and task unit commander. Over his 20 years in naval special warfare, he transitioned from an enlisted SEAL sniper to a junior officer leading assault and sniper teams in Iraq and Afghanistan, to a platoon commander practicing counterinsurgency in the southern Philippines, to commanding a special operations task unit in the most Iranian-influenced section of southern Iraq throughout the tumultuous drawback of U.S. forces. Jack is now a best-selling author, podcaster, and most importantly, devoted husband and father. In today's episode, we discuss how Jack's early influences in life steered him towards a career as a Navy SEAL and later best-selling author, his training and preparation that was needed to successfully complete SEAL training, why and how Jack started his popular podcast and the value it has to his listeners and himself, the definition of hero and how it has changed through the years, how Jack keeps his books as accurate as possible without giving away military secrets, his first book, Terminalist, and how it will soon be launched on Amazon Prime as a TV series, how Jack deals with negative reviews, and Jack's favorite books. All this and more on today's episode of the Cops and Writers Podcast. Jack Carr, welcome to the show. How's it going? Thanks so much for having me on. No, thank you. This has been a, a little bit of a, I hate to use the word journey because I think that word is overused these days, but it's been interesting how we got here because it's been a while. Yeah, it started with my good friend Lois that's in my Facebook group, who is neighbors up in Alaska with Mark Cameron, who writes the Tom Clancy novels. And I interviewed him, and then he pointed me in the direction of Simon Gervais. And when I was done interviewing Simon, I always ask my guests, I'm like, hey, uh, who do you think would be a good fit for this? He says, oh, Jack Carr, of course. And I'm like, oh, okay, sounds good. So he directed me to you, and here we are. Here we are. Yeah, Simon's amazing. Mark's great. Um, yeah, I love the the community of authors because everyone is so supportive. At least everyone yes. I've anyway. Um, and there's probably some that aren't, but I, I 
I haven't met them yet. Uh, and I thought it was going to be different when I entered this space. I thought it was going to be everyone keeping me at arm's length because I was the new guy um, kind of intruding on their space or something like that because I had no touch point with anything other than the military and the exact opposite was true. Everyone was, uh, it was so welcoming and so kind and, uh, so supportive. Uh, and you know, I try to do the same, but it's just such a, such a supportive community. Yeah. It is amazing how that works. I was surprised when I started getting into this, that it wasn't like the competition doggy dog kind of thing where yeah, it's like, all. Hey, there's zillions of readers out there. There's room, you know, you know, I don't feel like I'm in competition with, you know, whoever, you know, whatever your cup of coffee, your flavor is, is what you're going to drink. Also, uh, Kevin Tumlin says, howdy. I was talking to him a couple of days ago. You were Very on the Wordslinger podcast. That was before Terminalist, like, kicked off. I think it might have been. Yeah. 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 No, I, 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 I so feel so fortunate for everybody because you couldn't have done this in 1985, 1975, 1995. So, but uh, today you can. And uh, you can take advantage of these different platforms. And I try to take advantage of them as a way to say thank you to people who allow me to do what I love doing, which is right. Um, and in the past, the only way you could do that as an author was really at a book signing where you physically shook somebody's hand and they right. took a picture and then you could thank them for, for, uh, for getting your book. And then they tell, you know, a friend about it or something like that. And, uh, so you could say it there in person, and then maybe you could say it, squeeze it in on maybe one interview that you had or one print interview that you had where you could thank everyone, but that was it. Uh, and now with social media and with podcasts, you can really, you know, thank everyone who reaches out and says, Hey, I love your book. I told my mom, I told my dad, I told my son or whatever it is, or I gifted it to so-and-so and they loved it too. And you can say, Hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. So I try to, uh, to do that every chance I get. Yeah, that's awesome. So in preparation of this podcast last night, I stayed up and watched Lone Wolf McQuaid. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I was listening to a podcast. Uh, nice. I forget where it was. And you were talking about movies that you liked. I'm like, oh, my God, I remember seeing that when it first came out. I'm old. You know, and it's like all my buddies and I were like, yeah, Chuck Norris. is. This is the best. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Right. <laughs> so, that movie is fantastic. I love that movie. I think it's one of his best. Oh, yeah. Without a doubt. The, it was so bad. It's good. You know, and the cheesy music and just, oh, you got to love it. Yeah, but, I think when I was nine, I think I saw it on VHS. I think I saw it a couple, a couple <laughs> years after it came out. But uh, oh, man, I love that film. It's so cool. Oh yeah, it is that that and uh, Commando. Those are my two favorite. You know, yeah, like t- total cheese, but totally yeah. love them. Eighties like action. Yeah, exactly. So we're talking about TV or movies. Are there any out there that accurately depict life of a Navy SEAL? Well, there's aspects of a lot of different ones that that do. Um, I remember American Sniper when I saw that. Whoever did the set design for that movie, they got what Ramadi looked like in 2006. I mean, that's that's what Ramadi looked like. So whoever did that set design, they crushed it. Um, there's and then of course there's other aspects that aren't quite so realistic, like uh, somebody calling home from the middle of a firefight on his <laughs> yeah. wife. Like, no, that would never. Happen. I can imagine that ever happening. And if it did, you'd be fired, sent home never operate again okay um, so there's aspects to it um the way they in that movie the way they showed what it was like to come home uh from something and still be thinking about being mm. down range like they did a really good job with that in that film um even the seal team cbs show like they show they do a like they have their weapons and gear 
look great. Uh, so the guys doing that, and I know a couple of guys on the show that are doing it. Uh, that's uh, Tyler Gray, former Delta Force guy. He's in there. He's now directing, acting, um, writing for the uh, for the series. Uh, Justin Melnick, who's an awesome guy. Like he, they they got together and they got the great cry precision pants and shirts, and and uh, they got the right plate carriers, and they got they have some really uh, authentic looking weapons and and all of that. So they do a great job with that, and then they do some really good job showing some of the struggles and some of the home front family uh, uh, tensions and, and that sort of a thing. So I think there are elements to a lot of these different shows. Um, but if you look at like, look for the one thing you'll find it in every show Sure, uh, that it's not right and not realistic. And, uh, and then some people just based on personality might discount the whole thing. Uh, but otherwise, Hey, you know, that's a kind of a miserable way to go through life. If you're just going to go and look for the negative and everything, and <laughs> that you is to, true. You, know, you get to choose uh, how you're going to go through life. But, um, it's, uh, you know, I try to, to, if I see something that's not quite right, you know, Hey, you know, that's okay. And especially now, now that I've been on set, now that I've been part of the process of bringing my first book to life, now I see how easy it is to mess things up. And it's actually <laughs> shocking one that anything gets made in Hollywood, anything good gets made. <laughs> there are so many opportunities to completely mess it all up. Uh, and so now I'm, I was forgiving before, but I think now I'm even more forgiving when I see something because I know how much work went into okay. it and just how easy it is to mess things up. Gotcha. You know, I watched American Sniper, you know, more than one time. And one thing that stuck out in me, in my head was, you know, they have, you know, Chris Kyle showing the Marines how to clear buildings. Yeah. Yeah. That's what stuck in my head because, you know, he said, you guys are really good at what you do, but you really haven't been trained up on like clearing the, you know, like houses, you know, the urban stuff. He yeah. says, you know, this is what, and the way he was doing it, I'm like, holy shit, that's spot on. You know, I've been through all kinds of training for that. And I'm like, yeah, that's exactly how you do it. And I'm like, wow, that, you know, that really added an air of authenticity to my brain. And he wasn't trying to be an asshole about it. And he's like, out of my way, guys, let me show you how it's done. It's like, hey, I can show you, you know, a little bit better way of doing this, that it's a little bit safer, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, how cool is that? Yeah, you know, that I really liked that part of that movie. Oh, very cool. Yeah, I haven't seen it since it first came out, so uh, so I forget that part. But but the parts that did stand out to me were the the set design, or the uh, coming home part, and then the the call from the middle of a firefight. It didn't uh, that, that didn't sit quite right. But hey, <laughs> okay. but hey, artistic <laughs> license, right? Exactly, exactly. They're gonna they're gonna take some liberties. That's okay. Well, tell you what, for people who don't know you or your work, could you kind of give us a brief snapshot? of where it all started, you know, like where you grew up a little bit and your interest in writing. I know your mom was a librarian, so that had a heavy influence on you, but, and then like going in the Navy and the Navy SEALs where you worked and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. So I, it was, I was one of those people who was very fortunate in that I knew exactly what I wanted to do from a very early age, the, the two things. And I didn't realize how closely connected they were, but looking back, I probably should have, but I knew I was going to serve my country in uniform. And then after that, I knew I was going to write thrillers. And uh, the, the connection between those two things is that in the early 80s, there was not much written about SEALs, uh, special operations, that sort of a thing. And that's where my interests lie, um, continue to lie today. And uh, having a mom who's a librarian, uh, she took every opportunity to teach us how to research. And I spent a lot of time in libraries and in bookstores. And I was reading any article, any uh, newspaper clipping, uh, any uh, book, anything that had a touch point with special operations, terrorism, insurgency. Counterinsurgencies, counterinsurgencies. And at that time, that was a lot of uh, Vietnam 
um, history. Uh, and there still wasn't even that much of, of that, obviously, before, before the internet. But, uh, but then I, I, about fifth grade, I started gravitating to the same kind of books that my parents were reading. Uh, so for October came out, I uh, discovered mm-hmm. David Morrell, Nelson DeMille, AJ Quinnell, Jason Pollock, Mark Olden, uh, Louis L'Amour, all these guys who had protagonists with backgrounds that I wanted in real life one day. And back before the internet, you assume that the author has done their research, and because uh, you have no way, you have no way to check on a lot of these things. So, right. a lot of the touch points that I had with the military were through these thrillers, and I had such a great time reading them. I knew that after my time in uniform, that I was going to write those same type of books. And you know, when you're a kid, when you're in fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth grade, and you're coming up with your life plan, and you're hearing the calling and you're listening to it uh, and I'm training for the military and then I'm reading these books. You don't think for one second that you're not going to make it through buds. Uh, you know, 80% of people don't. And you don't think for a second that you're not going to be a number one New York times bestselling author. And that an A-list actor isn't going to option your work and make it into a film. That's just how it, how it goes. Uh, you're going to be there on that, on that list. And you're gonna- <laughs> You're going to be there at that premiere. And, and, uh, and I never really thought any different. I was just like, I didn't waste any bandwidth worrying about either of those things, not making it through buds or not being, uh, an author. And, uh, and so I didn't waste any bandwidth on that. All my work, all my, my focus was into preparing myself for the SEAL teams, uh, and then writing the best book that I possibly could. Uh, and then that first one, I wasn't worried about agents or publishers or, uh, or website or social media, any of that stuff. I was just worried about making the book the best it could possibly be. That's the entire focus. Um, and that's why I wasn't worried over here. Like, Oh, I need a website at some point. Nope. That was not even part of any sort of calculus. Mm. Uh, so, so many similarities between going into the military, particularly special operations and that attrition rate. And uh, actually the looks people give you when you tell them you're going to be a SEAL, uh, the very same looks that they give you when you tell them you're going to be an author. They, uh, <laughs> you're like oh that's nice you know that's that's a nice dream you're gonna get crushed uh uh, so it's it's very interesting how similar uh those two professions are and i call them professions not careers i think there's a difference um so it's the profession of arms profession of writing and uh and but it's interesting how many people can discourage you with just a look uh and it's sure those looks as fuel to uh continue to to make your product whether it's yourself going into the military or it's some an actual product like a book uh the best it can possibly be so as far as going into the navy and being a seal why why exactly did you go that direction why that and what did the training look like yeah. So, uh, my grandfather was killed in world war two. He was a Corsair pilot, which, uh, for those who remember mm-hmm. is the same thing that Pappy Boynton flew. Yeah, Marine Corps, uh, right? Yeah. Marine Corps aviation. And, uh, uh, there was a show on in the late seventies that, oh, yeah. uh, Black Sheep Squadron with Robert Conrad portraying, yep. uh, portraying Pappy Boynton. And I used to watch that with my dad. And that was our kind of touch point to that World War II generation. And uh, I always knew I was going in the military, but then I was more drawn towards that primal ground combat. Um, uh, you know, aviation had progressed a little bit since the days of, since World War II days. And um, I was just, I just knew that my my place in the world was going to be uh, on the ground. Um, and the, the enemy was going to be uh, 
um, terrorist organizations. I mean, going up in the 80s, you're seeing the Time magazine and Newsweek and the cover of your uh, local newspaper. And if you got one, maybe that was national. You saw Beirut barracks bombing. You saw the Iranian sure. crisis in in, uh, in 79. You saw different abductions. You saw uh, uh, TWA 47 later on, uh, right before the end of the, the decade, you saw uh, Pan Am um, uh, or Lockerbie. So you saw all these things during a very formative time. And it was very clear that, hey, special operations is the place to be for my generation and our enemy is going to be these different terrorist organizations. Um, so I was just drawn drawn to it. So uh, went in and uh, I wanted to enlist because I wanted to be a sniper and typically officers aren't snipers. So I did about six and a half years enlisted. Um, my second deployment was September 11th, 2001. And wow. uh, we were in it from uh, uh, from then on. It was a full-on sprint. And we got to do the things that we thought we were going to do when we showed up at our first SEAL team. We thought when we showed up that we we're going to be zipping around the world uh, <laughs> doing these secret missions. And that wasn't the case. Uh, but after September 11th, we got to do what we came in to do. So um, that was that path. And then I was on it for the, uh, the rest of my time in uniform. And if I were there any thoughts about getting out earlier on, uh, September 11th, some Yep. So at uh, September 11th, it, uh, that was my, uh, two weeks into my second deployment. And so there was, wow. uh, there was no question after that, uh, I was staying in and this was my the fight for my generation and, uh, my responsibility to stay in, step up, keep learning, keep adapting. Cause that's what the enemy is doing. And, uh, and so just spent the next, uh, well, the entire time in uniform, the whole, uh, spent 20 years in the military, but then it was very clear when I got back from my last deployment that it was also time to move on, take care of my family and, uh, turn the page on what I'd done and then build off that foundation. And that next thing I want to do in life was right. So I got to do that during my last about year and a half in the military was I was getting out because those who have uh, been in uniform know when you get out of this gigantic bureaucracy called the military, you have to go around and uh, get read out of secret programs, turn in gear, go to medical, go to dental, go I'll do all these uh, transition programs, get signatures. It just becomes a process and you have to wait in line for all those. And oftentimes, because it's the military, you wait in line to then make your appointment, to then go back and stand in line later. <laughs> you have some time. You finally have some time and you're not taking people downrange no one's life is in your hands anymore uh, and you can take a breath and think about what you're going to do next and luckily for me i knew exactly what that was and uh i wrote down about uh six seven eight nine ten different uh ideas uh, like one page executive summaries for okay. uh, novel and yeah. wrote it down and put them on a table and then it was very clear to me that the terminal list was the one to start with um wasn't even a, wasn't even a question i mean i wanted to write savage sun which is my third book mm-hmm. i wanted that was when i was drawn towards but i knew that the characters weren't yet developed enough to explore that story uh and i had to start with the terminal list that's how james reese had to get introduced and then even sure. at the end of that book he had to go on a journey of redemption it wasn't quite ready for savage sun yet had to develop that character further. And then after the end of that book of true believer, I was like, okay, now I can write Savage Sun. So okay. that's, uh, that's how that works. Cool. Now, could you give us a snapshot of what training looked like? You know, maybe a couple of stories. People are always asking or curious about training, you know, especially for like a, a unit, like the seals, you know, like how bad was it? You see like little snippets, like in movies or documentaries or whatever, but you know, you talked about buds earlier on. And as a side note, how did you prepare physically and mentally? Because mentally is probably as important or more important. We'll be right back. Today's episode is sponsored by the thrilling audiobook Avenging Adam, book one in the FBI canine thriller series written by author Jody Burnett. 
Sparks fly between hotshot FBI agent Rick Sanchez and no-nonsense FBI canine handler Kendra Dean as they chase a ruthless serial killer. Witness an electrifying blend of suspense, romance, and redemption, where internal conflicts challenge our heroes as much as their target does. Will they catch the killer before it's too late? Grab Avenging Adam now. It's more than a story. It's an experience. Get 50% off the Avenging Adam audiobook at jody-burnett.com forward slash cops and writers. Yep, yeah, no, it's uh, a mental fortitude is one of the main things that uh, they're looking for. And they test that through pushing you physically, which also happens to test that uh, that mental fortitude, um, especially when you're staying up for a week during hell week and you're uh, frozen on the edge of hypothermia the whole time. And they make it very easy to quit and get warm. And um, you have this, this huge attrition. You're seeing people that were very strong or very loud or whatever, quitting in droves and ringing that bell. And uh, so they make it very, very easy to self-select out of the program. But um, yeah, I just did hard things. I just did difficult things growing up. I just pushed myself whether it was in, uh, in sports or, or whatever else it might be is training on my own. Uh, I just pushed myself as hard as I could, uh, knowing that, uh, hey, this is, you, this is what you have to do. Uh, and I'd see some videos, some pictures in different magazines like Soldier of Fortune or Gung Ho, whatever mm. it was that showed guys, uh, cargo nets in the obstacle course or uh, going along the spider wall or climbing ropes or whatever it might be. And uh, so I did those things. Uh, I did it as much as I could just doing pull-ups and changing my grip or whatever it was, sprinting the hill outside the house, getting good at long distance running, got uh, long distance rucking with a heavy weight on my back. Mm -hmm. Um, So I just did things in the outdoors, things that I thought were going to prepare me uh, for what I was going to face in the future. Uh, Just trying to preparing, preparing myself. I mean, there was no internet back then to go on and sign up for a buds prep course. Sure. Yeah, you just had to do the research and then do what you thought would best prepare you. So that's what I did. And uh, then in Buds, what I did was think about how much more uh, uh, other people had sacrificed and how much more difficult it was for other people uh, to give me the option and opportunity to follow my dream in this country. So I thought of, hey, guys, from the inception of this country up until today, sacrificing everything so that I could follow my dream and be on this beach in Coronado, California, doing push-ups, doing sit-ups in the surf zone. Uh, and I thought of, I thought of guys at Iwo Jima. I thought of Normandy. Um, I thought of people going into to Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam. And I thought, you know what? I'm just getting yelled at here in Coronado. I'm, I can, I can, I can last a little longer. This is nothing <laughs> that those guys would. Uh, so, so I, I put things in relative terms, uh, okay. I, which I, which I think helps. Now, as far as one thing that you hear a lot when it comes to seals is buds, you know, buds week or buds training. What exactly is that? Could you kind of explain it? So BUDS is SEAL training, basic underwater demolition SEAL training. And uh, it's six months. And when I went through, it was the fourth week of training that was Hell Week. And that's the one that people think about and that uh, you see in books and documentaries and that sort of a thing. But uh, it's broken down into three phases. The first phase has, has this Hell Week in it. And it's a physical conditioning phase. The second phase is dive phase where you learn uh, how to dive. And then they also test you and see how comfortable you are in the water, because you might be, you might be the greatest guy, a leader, great shape, uh, crushed it in hell week. And then for whatever reason, you just can't get comfortable underwater. Um, so that's what the dive phase is testing. And then the third phase is land warfare. And really there, they just want to make sure that you're uh, safe with explosives and safe with firearms. I mean, there's the, the B in buds stands for basic for a reason. So that is everything <laughs> is very basic. It's very difficult. There's a lot of stress, of course. Uh, right. You have to meet these certain thresholds. You have to uh, meet these requirements, whether it's a, a timed run, a timed swim, a timed obstacle course, uh, different tests. 
life-saving, whatever it might be, pool comp comes in diet phase where you have your uh, just old school tanks like you would see somebody wearing in the 60s and uh, uh, you're underwater, you're crawling along the bottom of the pool and then you get hit by these instructors and they you rip the regular out of your mouth, tie it, it has these dual hoses and they tie it in a knot and they bounce you up and down off, off the bottom, they'll hit you in the gut so you expel your hair <laughs> and then they go through these uh, procedures and they can then they go up to the top, get a breath and they watch you. And then you have to very calmly go through this procedure where you're untying this knot turning your air back on getting your stuff back on because they pull it off you they, they rip all their stuff off um and then you're just getting back in the right order um and then start crawling again and then they hit you again um and they do that for about 15 minutes or so until they're 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 like hey, okay this guy's this guy's comfortable underwater next um and so uh <laughs> So that, that was, that was great. And for me, that was great because it was very few, there are very few times in SEAL training and buds where you get to go like one-on-one with instructor. Usually you're just getting yelled at and, and running and that right. sort of thing. Um, but this is like, Hey, you versus me, like, let's go. Uh, yeah, so that was fun. But, uh, but hell week is where you get most of your attrition, where most of that 80% comes, not all of it, but a lot of it and, uh, starts on a Sunday afternoon and then ends on a Friday afternoon. And, uh, so whatever time you wake up Sunday, uh, that was your, your, essentially your last sleep on Wednesday, they give you two hours, but it's in a tent on a cot on the beach and some guys go right to sleep and some people don't. Uh, and then when you, when they do on Thursday as well, but the worst part of buds for me of hell week for me was getting woken up from that. Cause you're in there, you haven't slept since, uh, since you woke up on Sunday morning and, uh, then you just get two hours and you're immediately woken up. So you close your eyes. And you're back up awake again, it seems like, and you're right back <laughs> into the cold Pacific Ocean. Uh, and then you get a lot of quitters there as well. But uh, but after about Wednesday night, Thursday morning, uh, you get a couple of quitters, but usually you're a zombie by that point. People are hallucinating and it's uh, it's pretty wild. So uh, by that point, unless you get hurt, very few people really quit after Thursday because you got one more big night, you know, ahead of you. And, uh, and then, you know, that uh, there's you can see the light at the end of the tunnel, I guess. Okay. So obviously it's as bad as what is portrayed, you know, and sometimes, you know, stuff is romanticized, you know, through the years, but it does sound like it's that tough. Yeah. I don't think you could develop this program today. If you went, if the SEALs didn't exist and somebody went to the Navy and said, Hey, I'm going to start this Navy special, this Naval special warfare program. And here's, here's what we're going to do. And uh, here's the first, (laughs) second phase, third phases we're going to do these guys. There's no way that people would give it a thought sign off today. The only reason we have these types of tough programs, whether it's BUDS or the, the Special Forces Q course, or it's the, the training that the PJs go through, the Air Force PJs go through, mm-hmm. um, is because they're legacy programs. I do not think that if you were to start from scratch today and propose these things, that they would let you do it. That it would be like, oh, it's torture. We can't treat these guys that way. And uh, why do we have standards? Shouldn't everybody be like, it would be a little bit different uh, today, I think, if you tried to uh, to propose what is what is actually going on in these programs. I mean, obviously, you're plugged into the community most likely still. Do you think it's going down at all? Are they like lowering the bar? Um, I don't know, because I'm not as plugged into that okay. side of it. Um, which is the training side of it. Um, but I, I did see efforts to try to reframe why we were doing some of the training. Like, hey, why are we doing this hell week? The guys aren't staying up for a week downrange, sitting in the water, freezing to death. So why are we doing that in training? So I saw those kind of questions coming down the pike. Uh, so okay. I don't know, you know, where they where they ended up or not, but um, people are definitely asking questions. Uh, and it's good to ask questions. But right. at the same time, there's a there's a program out there that uh, that gives you 
something, if you went through today, you'd have something in common with the person that went through in 1972, 1983, uh, 1991, whatever it was. Uh, now you share this common bond um, uh, as a community, uh, which grounds you. Uh, and it's, uh, it's really about that mental fortitude. There are definitely things we can do better, like testing for character. The Israeli uh, army does that a lot better. The Israeli military in general, uh, the Israeli SEALs, which are called Flotilla 13, they test for character during hmm. their training program. We don't do that. Um, so you could have someone make it through, and I'm sure we have, that uh, have very low character, uh, but are as a high performer physically. Right. Uh, really not what you're looking for. Um, but it's so, so there are definitely things that we can do to, uh, uh, to better select, uh, use technology to better select. Uh, but at the same time, there's a few things, there's, there's crucibles. And you look back in history, there, there are reasons that, uh, that, uh, that, that uh, communities, tribes, countries had these, these tests and these crucibles for those who would go out in defense of those nations, um, defense of the tribe, defense of the community. Um, there, there's, there's a reason it's in our, it's in our DNA and uh, those, those tests are important, I think. When I was listening to you on a different podcast, you were talking, this is totally off what we're talking about right now, is uh, Musashi. I don't know many people that have read Musashi. I read it when I was in college. And then it was the Book of Five Rings as well, right? Yeah, Book of Five Rings. And then uh, uh, the other one, Musashi, about uh, his life and, and all, all that. Yeah, stuff. it's like that thick. It's like a phone book. Yeah, yeah, right over in the other room here where uh, a lot of my books are right now. Yeah, I was just uh, going to say, I don't know many people that do, but everybody that I do talk to that has read Musashi pretty much has their head squared, you know, on straight. So good on you. I, I like that. <laughs> yeah, I was interested in that stuff from the, the youngest days. Like, you know, you couldn't just get on the internet or play a video game forever. You can only do Atari 2600 for so long. <laughs> Before you reach the end of the game, uh, <laughs> the Oregon Trail, for those who remember. The oh, my gosh. Yes, yes. I remember that. I remember that. Something like that. Have um, you only do those things for a certain uh, you know, <laughs> a finite amount of time before you lose it. So, right. uh, uh, so yeah, the, reading was a natural part of our life growing up with a mom who's a librarian and a dad yeah. who encouraged us to read. It was just as normal as exercise or as sitting down to eat as a family or whatever it might be. It wasn't something that was forced upon me. It was just something sure. that, uh, that was natural and something that was a good fit for me. And then as I started going down this path and reading some of those same things my parents were reading, I wanted to read what I should read to be a, as a student of warfare. Um, a lot of the, the uh, martial art magazines back in the day would uh, reference Mushashi, Black Belt Magazine, or Kung Fu Magazine. I forget. Right. I remember those. There was a slew of them. Um, and uh, and so anytime I would see one of those and it would be recommended in an article in one of those magazines, I would go and buy it um, and put it on my shelf and, and read it and try to understand as much as I, as I could at that young age. But uh, even though I didn't grasp all the concepts, no matter what it is, then in the art archery or whatever it was, mm -hmm. uh, I still it still helped with that foundation. It still helped build that foundation, uh, especially at such a, such a young age. Uh, and then I could go revisit those things later, because at the same time I'm building this library, uh, that I still have today. Okay. Now let's switch gears. Your, your podcast danger close. How did all that start? Yeah. Well, initially I just didn't want to answer people's questions that were maybe more, maybe more contentious or maybe had, uh, a, had uh, a little more or uh, a little more controversial as far as issues go. And people were curious about what I thought about certain things. And as we know, social media isn't the best place to no. debate views or to try to get a point across in one sentence or two that just allow whoever wants to to pile on. So, um, so I, I noted that right off the bat 
and thought, you know what, a better way to do this. I want to answer these questions if people are interested. Um, you know, I can do so in long form conversation on a podcast. And so that is how it initially started. And mm. I had heard people talk about how there are no barriers to entry with podcasts and all that sort of thing. Well, there are barriers to entry with the podcast if you're not, uh, you know, <laughs> as technically oriented as uh, right. maybe the kids are these days. Uh, I managed to get as far as uh, buying the 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 little caster thing here, um, getting a microphone, seeing, figuring out where to plug that in, like the basics. Uh, but then when it came to, wait, how do you upload it to a, what form, what, what platform and how do you do that? And then maybe like a graphic to go with it or no, no, it's important. Just like with sniper weapon systems or anything in life, it's important to know your capabilities, but also your limitations. Right. Uh, so my limitation was, is that, uh, you know, you're trying to figure out passwords and platforms and, and all the rest of it, editing, like no way. Um, uh, <laughs> putting an intro and an outro onto something, no chance. Um, so I realized, Hey, I'm going to need some, some help here. And a uh, great company called Ironclad had helped me with, uh, the book trailer videos that I'd done. Mm. And, uh, so they were getting into the podcast uh, realm and talked to them and, and they, uh, they jumped on board and danger close was born. Um, but it really started as a way just to answer questions, uh, that I was getting on social channels that, uh, that I didn't think lent themselves to the platform, mm. uh, do justice to the person asking the questions or, uh, or to others who might, uh, might be interested in what, uh, in what I have to say about it. So, uh, so it started just like that. And, and then it grew very quickly into, uh, to what it is today. It continues to grow with each and every, every podcast, uh, with really interesting guests. And so now it's uh, one, it's a great way to, uh, connect with friends. Um, that I wouldn't sit down and talk to you for sure. an hour, hours because we're all so busy these days. So I use it as a way to catch up with with friends uh, and then talk to talk to other authors that I'm interested in. Um, and uh, and also I get a lot of a lot of ideas uh, by by being forced to read these books because a guest is coming on. Um, so I'm like, okay, I, I can't not read this. I have to do it. I have to because they're taking time out of their day uh, to spend it with me. Um, I have to have that, that respect there, read this book, come up with good, good questions, lead the conversation. And then also for those who have chosen to spend their time with me, whether it's in the pages of a book or listening to an audio book or watching the podcast, or even just following me on social media, um, they're choosing to, they're trusting me with their time. And so that's very important to me to be a good steward of that. And, uh, so I put a lot of, a lot of work into the podcast and to the, the prep and the questions. Um, uh, but I actually in doing that, especially with the nonfiction, uh, authors, I get a lot of ideas that end up working their way into at least a sentence in, uh, in my novels as well. So it's, uh, and now it's become my biggest platform, which I did. It wasn't the intent out of the gate, but, uh, but it's, um, yeah, it's grown very rapidly. Yeah. You know, I really like the format. I like the podcast and I like the variety of guests that you've had, you know, Danny Trejo. I love that one that he is so interesting. I ran out and like, literally when I was done listening to that podcast, I bought his book Yeah, I bought, and he narrates it, which was even better yet. Oh, nice. So I read it and, uh, and, uh, I forget if I listened to it or not. Usually I just read because I'm, yeah, see, I love audio books. Yeah, so no, I, I used segment of publishing, you know, for those, Oh yeah. It'll, it'll, uh, it'll take over. And I think that's what most kids today will, that'll be their entry point to reading is through audiobooks. I think that's, mm -hmm. uh, there's so many distractions for these kids today that didn't exist, obviously when we were growing up, but, uh, I think their entry point to reading and sitting down with a good book is going to be 
audio, not positive. There's nothing, I have no, no data to base that upon, but, uh, but, but that, that is a trend and that, you know, I've looked at the hard numbers and that's, that's totally 100%. You know, that's a very growing industry right now is audiobooks. You know, that's 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 huge. But yeah. I just did it because I had long commutes. Nice. There you go. Yeah, a lot of people do that. A lot of people do that. And then uh yeah, Danny Trejo was fantastic. Uh uh Donald Logue, who wrote it yes. with him, who's an actor as well. Yep. Great guy. He he heard that and then wanted to come on the podcast. So I gotta have a great long conversation with him. Uh what an interesting guy. Yes. So I do like the variety of guests uh, as well, which is uh, is fun is fun for me, and you know I get that that feedback. But once again, it wasn't uh, something that I started in order to uh, I don't know make a profit or make a do so. It was just hey, another way to engage with an audience that right. I could have done in the past. And when I stepped into this, I noted a lot of authors that would complain about their publisher not doing enough for them. Oh, okay. um, for me, I took the opposite approach, and I was like, hey, this they, they gave me my shot. Simon and Schuster, Atria, Emily Bessler books. They gave me my shot. Now it's my turn to prove that I was a good investment, um, and I went went all in. So it's a it's a good matchup in that uh, David Brown, my publicist, is amazing, and Simon and Schuster, and they do they do that traditional side very mm-hmm. well. But some of these other things like podcasts and social, they're still like you know because they were because they're you know these legacy organizations that have been around for so long. Right. Uh, so the newer things are a little harder to adapt, and mm-hmm. uh, it's so personal. The, the new media. It's so personal. So to have someone else do it for you is uh, that people can know, you know, it, people can know. So if an author right. is saying, my publicist not doing what I need them to do with my website, my social media, my whatever else. Um, well, these are, those things are so much more personal than like an ad in the New York Times or the sure. Washington Absolutely. 1987. Um, and you have to be engaged. And, you know, that's a, that's uh, obviously double edge uh, there because it takes time and uh, and it opens you up. It opens you up to uh, to reviews to anyone who doesn't like you personally or your work to be able to have a direct contact and let <laughs> yes. you know. About me. So oh, yeah. uh, and if you don't have thick skin, which I don't, um, people <laughs> I talked about that, you know, Navy SEAL should have thick skin. It's just like, well, it's it's still writing or any sort of art that is subjective is uh, it's so personal. So when someone uh, hates it and then hates it for a personal reason, um, then it's uh, it, I think it cuts a little deeper than like if you, I don't know, had a, I don't know, a watch company or, you know, a paper company or something um, that it's just a little less personal. I think. Yeah. I give credit to anybody who's got the guts to hit the publish button because you're literally putting yourself out there. If you sell 10 books or, you know, a thousand books or a million books, whatever, you know, you're putting yourself out there and you are going to get the trolls. That is just the way it is. And you're going to have to deal with it. You know, that's, if you want to be in this business, it's going to happen. Yeah. Unless you're an outlier, like there are outliers and a lot of people think of those outliers as the norm, but uh, Hey, like a JK Rowling or uh, like a 50 shades of gray book or a twilight or something like that. Uh, you know, they don't need to be on social media, but yeah, uh, right. <laughs> they're good. Yeah, uh, exactly. Uh, so, so some people don't need to, but, uh, but those are really the, the outliers today, especially if you're building something grassroots word of mouth. Um, then, uh, then, you know, you're going to be open to 
to these attacks. Oh, yes. Yes, you are. But again, you know, you take the good with the bad and there's a lot more good than there is bad when it comes to that. That's why I read the negative reviews, try to turn them into positives, because when someone gets on Amazon and says they uh, they hate the book because there's too much detail about the weapons or it's too violent or whatever it is. Well, guess what? That person just probably sold a bunch of books for me because yes. that resonate with somebody else. And they're going to be like, what? Oh, I'm a total, I'm a gear person. I finally, finally, someone doesn't take a safety off on a Glock. <laughs> you know, like, like that, that sort of right. Take those negative reviews, you know, they actually help. So, you know, hey, keep them coming. Yeah. I totally agree with you there. They get back to the podcast. You know, one that was on fairly recently was Oleg Tomlachev. Yeah, yeah. Just, in you, in the Ukraine. Morning. How, yeah, I was going to ask you, how is he doing? Have you heard back from him? Yeah, I just like, yeah, just talked to him about, I don't know, an hour ago. And, uh, no kidding. Yeah, okay. There and he's, he's, uh, running people in a race. He's kind of cryptic about what he's got going on yeah. there for security reasons. But he sent me a video yesterday of just this line that I couldn't barely tell what they are. It looked like there were some troop carriers in there. It looked like there were some tanks in there, but they were just shells of vehicles as he's driving along into, uh, into or out of a town. But uh, regular vehicles are um, moving around and kind of weaving their way through. Wow. You're just, it looked like, hey, normal traffic, but weaving around tanks and armored personnel character as carriers that are just destroyed um just sitting there on the road so um but he's he's uh he's doing as good as can be i always tell him hey be safe and you know take care and man but it's uh yeah i, I just wrote him this morning and i said uh when he sent me some of those videos and i said hey man you're gonna have to write a book when you get back from this. oh lord yes so how do you get your guests how do you get these people yeah, most of them are friends, uh, and I, I just know them, whether it's uh, from the military side of the house, the mm. intelligence side of the house, uh, authors now, uh, and then those that I that I don't know, like uh, like a Danny Trejo, his book happened to be coming out from Simon & Schuster. Um, oh, so, okay. Uh, okay, let's see if we can get Danny. Uh, and he was awesome. He was great, you know. And, <laughs> He's uh, a character. Oh, my God. Yeah, so some of them are like that. Some of them are, but most of them are a personal connection, or it's someone that I see that has a, uh, a book fiction or non coming out. And, uh, then I just figure out a way to, uh, to get to them, uh, and see if they you know, try to go through the proper channels. If I don't know them, um, just because I know, uh, how busy everyone is, but, uh, yeah, just try to try to reach out in a professional way to the people that I, that I don't know, uh, through my producer for the podcast and, uh, keep it all professional on that front. But a lot of them, I already have touch points with, I already have personal okay. with, and I just, all right. say, Hey, hey let's, uh, let's, let's schedule something and, and come on over, hop up, hop on. Okay. And of course we can't forget Jocko. I'm a huge fan. I was listening to his podcast, you know, he came before you did, you know, in the podcast world and, you know, it just clicked with me because I bought his books, you know, and I love the discipline equals freedom because I would, you know, I'd work a regular day and then I'd go to the gym and work out. And I tried to do that every day. And if I was feeling lazy or whatever, I just popped that in. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like, okay. And then <laughs> there's one chapter talking about, it was called, I think, sugar coated lies. Mm-hmm. You know, but, you know, it's like, yeah, you want to eat that donut. You're whatever. I'd be right. at work, you know, with a bunch of cops and there'd be a bunch of donuts out and I'd start playing it for them. I was like, okay, have those sugar coated lies, guys. Go ahead. Right. No, I think he, uh, uh, I think there's a video that he has. He has such great videos, uh, that come out. It was like one minute, two minute things where he's, uh, doing a voiceover with some really cool graphics and all that stuff. But I think he's helped so many people getting out and just being essentially being himself. Uh, and, uh, he's a unique individual. To say yes, he is. 
very fortunate to have gone through two of my pre-deployment workup cycles with him as the training mm-hmm. officer. So I learned a ton from him um, and uh, and his experience that I incorporate actually into the novels uh, oftentimes because I weave a lot of leadership lessons, even though they're fictional stories, weave a lot of that in there. Um, and yeah, he was kind enough to come on the podcast for his latest book. He was kind enough to have me on the podcast really before right. anybody you know, knew who I was. Um, so uh, so he's a, he's, a, he's a great guy. And I, I just love that he's helping people. Um, I think he's done a ton of great work and changed so many people's lives, um, which, uh, and so he's having a, a positive impact on the world, which is, you know, what we all hope for. I think unless you've done a job where you've been a service to someone, you don't get it. You know, I, I don't think there's anything better than being of service to someone because it always pays back in spades always. And you just feel good. I mean, I know it sounds corny, but you know, if you can help somebody else out and you're of service, either in a large magnitude, like doing what you were doing, or even just helping like a opening a door for somebody or whatever, you know, just be nice. It's really simple. Oh yeah. No, I, I try to tell the kids every chance I get, he never miss an opportunity to make somebody's day. Um, yep. so, uh, so that's kind of, I, I try to, I think about that, uh, each and every day as, as well. And, uh, yeah, we're trying to, trying to just do, uh, do a little good here, leave the world a little better than we, than we found it. And those with kids, you know, try to, uh, you know, pass on these, these different lessons and leave productive, uh, kind hearted citizens behind that are also prepared. And obviously if you follow me or read my right. book, you know that I, I have that, uh, that side as well. Oh, uh, sure responsibility sure. is uh as human beings to protect that gift of life uh protect the family protect the tribe the community that sort of a thing and it's just innate in our dna and it's in everyone but it's been uh uh kind of covered up over the last uh let's say 50 years where you may have been able to call 911 uh when you've been able to outsource your defense right. military that you never see when you've um, uh, been able to go to the grocery store pretty much uninterrupted to, to get something off the shelf and not think about where it came from or the work that went into getting it to that shelf. So you could have that hamburger on the grill. Um, so, uh, but when all that stuff goes away, you know, that there's still that fire inside, there's still that sixth sense. And, uh, I think we will revert to being warriors and hunters very quickly, uh, to protect that spark, to protect that gift of life, protect that family. Um, and that's just how it is. Yeah. You know, no matter what you think of COVID, and I, I try not to get political and I try not to talk about COVID because there's a hundred different, you know, attitudes and ideas and whatever about it. But I think it really shook people down to the core because it's like, okay, like you just said, I can go to the grocery store and there may not be food there or there's interruptions with the supply chain. And you had people that they had their entire life of well, I just go to the grocery store. I just go to McDonald's. I just go to wherever and there's food. I, I pay X amount of money and I get this good. It's a no brainer. But then you're thinking to yourself, oh, okay. And am I safe anymore? You know, I guess gun sales skyrocketed, you know, during yeah. all this civil unrest, et cetera, et cetera. And they're like, okay, am I safe in my house now? Right. You know, yeah. people are just like, do I know how to use a gun? Do I know, you know, just basic, basic self-defense that people were like clueless about. Yeah. And a lot of people reverted right back when uh, uh, things started to get back to my normal reverted <laughs> yeah. right back. Um, you know, that, 
Uh, but a lot of people didn't. A lot of people uh, were like, hey, okay, that was a wake-up call. Hey, do we have fire extinguishers in the house? Do we know how to use right. them? The kids know how to use them. Does the babysitter know how to use them? Um, that sort of a thing. Hey, do we have a little bit of food? Do we have a little bit of water? Uh, yep. Hey, what if, what if nobody comes when I call 911? Maybe I should take some responsibility here for my life and for those that I love. So it's uh, yeah, it was amazing how many people from California called me and were shocked that they couldn't just walk into a gun store and buy something. Um, and, well, no. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. Because you've been voting a certain way for a certain number of years. And, exactly. Yeah. Well, let's talk a little, uh, let's go in a different uh, uh, direction. You know, I, I'd like to talk to about survivor guilt to people that have been in your situation or my situation, but more specifically, you're retired now. You see, I've been retired for two years and I retired on January 16 of 20 when everything was kicking off. You know, there was angry mobs of rioters coming at the district station where I worked with Molotov cocktails. And I felt so guilty that I wasn't there helping out, you know, with my guys. I was a sergeant for 17 years. And it's like, what gives me the right to be sitting in my recliner watching it on TV while these guys are working 20-hour shifts, getting shot at, Molotov cocktails, literally piss and shit thrown at them, you know, rocks and bottles, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, like a guy was shot out in front of one of the districts that I worked at. You know, and of course, that's all played off, you know, blah, blah, blah. I won't get into it too much, but there was just a boatload of violence that was committed. And I'm sitting down just watching it. How do you feel? When you hear about like some of your old guys, you know, you were a boss, you were in charge of people and, you know, you led them literally into battle. How do you deal with being a civilian now? Yeah, I just look at it like, hey, there was there was going to be a, an end to this. Um, I think as an officer, uh, it was easier rather than enlisted because uh, if I'd stayed enlisted, then you can operate for a lot longer as an enlisted guy than you mm. can as an officer. Uh, as an officer, if I stayed in, I would have come back maybe as a commanding officer at some point. Okay, well, it sounds impressive. And when people hear that, it sounds impressive, but it's really you're a manager and you're in a tactical operations center. You're allocating assets. Mm. Uh yeah, you're quote unquote leading, but you're not leading on the battlefield. Yeah, you happen to be in Iraq, you happen to be in Afghanistan, but guess what? You're on a fob. Uh, you're in a, you're behind the gate. You're in the tactical operations center, um, and so it's different. So there's not a choice. Um, you're not going out there with the guys anymore. It's not like the old days where the general is leading the charge on horseback from the front mm-hmm. just pulled out. Um, it's very different. So, um, so for me, it was like, hey, I can't do anything about this anyway. That's where that's where I am. And now it's time to get out. My family needs me. Uh, there's responsibilities there. So uh, for me, I never really had uh, thought about it in those terms. Uh, I looked at it as, hey, I was right there. Uh, September 11th happened. We did everything that uh, I tried to stay in the fight as long as I possibly could. And uh, and now it's very clear that it's time to turn the page. Also very clear what I'm going to do next. Um, and now I have this foundation, not just as a, as, a, as a warrior, as a special operator, but as a reader, um, as a fan of this genre. And now as I'm getting out, I didn't realize how much those two were going to combine. But uh, the feelings and emotions behind certain events downrange, certainly <laughs> are woven into the pages of these novels. Sure. And 
very therapeutic to write. So, um, so for whatever reason, um, I, I just frame things in those terms, or I use that lens upon which to look at the past and uh, to the future. So I didn't have uh, any lingering guilt about not being there anymore. It's okay. uh, all about moving forward. My new mission is taking care of my family. My passion is writing and I've combined those two moving forward. So um, there's always that foot though, in that old world and that, oh, yeah. that about uh, continuing to, to stay prepared for whatever life throws at you. Sure. What's your definition of a hero? I, I believe this is just me that it's completely overused. I don't know how you could compare somebody who throws themselves on a hand grenade to save the rest of his buddies compared to, you know, a receptionist that was working during COVID at a medical office wearing a mask. I, I just, I don't see the connection, you know, obviously the person who throws themselves on a hand grenade is most likely going to die. Whereas, you know, you see heroes work here. Oh, this place has heroes. And I'm like, I think it's watering it down. It's almost like everybody gets a participation trophy now. What do you think of that? Yeah, you know, I don't think about it too often. I think uh, that those who def- those who didn't make it back are the ones that are the heroes to me. Um, those uh, those families that had to pick up and, and move forward without a without a father, without right. a husband. Um, you know, that's how I kind of look at it in those in those terms, and uh, don't spend uh, too much time thinking about how other people use it. Um, but that's how it is for for me. It's those uh, those people that didn't make it home. Gotcha. Now let's switch gears a little bit to the writing stuff. Now, when you s- submit work, you know, you have your manuscript that you're pounding out, et cetera. Do you have to submit it to Department of Defense first, like vetted before you can release it into the wild? Yeah. So I want to make sure that I was doing the, the right thing as I was getting out and went to uh, attorneys and uh, they see they looked at everything that I'd signed and recommended that that's the as a uh, a uh, uh, the right course of action. So okay. one, uh, they, uh, they say they'll get back to you in 30 days. First one they got back in. <laughs> 45, which I thought was pretty good for a for government entity. <laughs> yes. uh, and they took out about nine sentences out of that, that first one. So I just blacked them out in the, in the book. And then the second one, true believer, same thing. And uh, they took seven months to get back. We had to push the oh. date, which was not uh, ideal. And they're supposed to get back in 30. They've since changed the website. It doesn't say that anymore, but it used to be 30 days. And I think even one of the things I signed said they would get back to you in 30 days. So already they're not upholding their part of the bargain. Um, they took out 54, I want to say, 54 either words or sentences or passages yeah. um, in that second book. But this time I uh, appealed. So you have a certain amount of time to appeal. So I had my lawyers tie each and every one of the redactions to a publicly available government document. Not Wikipedia, not somebody else's book, not mm. some, but a publicly available government document. And uh, so they tied all 54 and then I only won on 37. I mean, they were all tied, but they only okay. seven. So, I, so I, and I, when the paperback came out, uh, you can see what they thought was so secret. Like I made up a black site in, I can say it now because they unredacted it. Um, I made up a black site in Morocco. I'd never, I've been to Morocco, but I've been there before my time in uniform, just as a, as a tourist. Sure. Um, and uh, so I never had any touch points with Morocco or anyone from Morocco intelligence services or anything like that during my time in the military. And I just made up that there was a black site there and they were, they took out Morocco. They took out the, uh, uh, the archetype of architecture I described. They took out the mountains in the background. Wow. Uh, and when I appealed, they, uh, they let me win uh, on that one. So someone could deduce 
that because they had redacted it, and then I tied it to a publicly available government document, they unredacted it, that, oh, that we probably may have a black site in. But had they not done any of that, we wouldn't know. It's just fiction. So it's the government, you know, that, I mean, yeah. in my my control here on that. So it just doesn't make any sense. So did the okay. same thing with the third one. They took out some some sentences in the third one in Savage Sun, uh, appealed again. And then they didn't let me appeal. They wrote back. And even though it was in the amount of time and totally professional and exactly the way that it should be done and the way it was done for the second book, uh, they would they did not let me appeal. And I, so I took that as a quit bugging us with this fiction. And uh, and we have we have actual work to do here. So that, that's how I'm taking it anyway, uh, because they wouldn't let me appeal it. So now going forward, I'm so far removed from my time in the military. Uh, we're, we're out of Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, the research that I do now is on things that I did not have touch points on in the military. Mm. Is uh, bioweapons, or it's in uh, this next book, uh, uh, in the blood that's coming out May 17th. Uh, there's uh, artificial intelligence, quantum computing, that mm-hmm. sort of stuff in there. And I didn't know anything about that in the military, never did anything. So I, did, I also don't want them taking liberties to redact things that I didn't learn from my time in the military. Right. Uh, which they would. So are you going to continue to do that now, or you're just going to stop? No, I'm taking their, when they didn't let me appeal, I'm taking that as, hey, don't bother this, don't bother okay. this anymore so that's uh which yeah and if you can't possibly do one book a year when they're taking seven months oh months, yeah that's that's un- that's not reasonable that's not and they say 30 days and what you signed was 30 days so they're they've already not <laughs> held their part of the bargain part of the bargain and sure you know, okay. so okay. how do you tiptoe through the minefield of believability when you're writing these books and obviously you don't want to give away tactics or secrets you know that some enemy's eyes would be looking at how do you do that yeah i mean it's one of those things where uh what we did downrange at least what i did downrange was what every single big city police swat team is going to do tonight all across america uh we just happened to do it in baghdad we happened to do it in missoula we happened to do it in a, a compound in afghanistan um that sort of a thing so it's uh I, 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 people think that as a seal you know all the secret stuff and you know, really, you're sneaking up to somebody's house in the middle of the night. You're either mechanically or explosively breaching that door or maybe picking the lock and going in and grabbing them out of bed or you're getting in a firefight if they're prepared for you. Um, and then you're going back to base and questioning that person, turning them over to people that question them and getting some more intel, going through whatever you grabbed out of that out of that house, whether it was a computer or a thumb drive or whatever else, uh, exploiting that and putting that together and looking just like it, like, you know, just putting like a crime family up on a wall and who's connected sure. to who and, okay, that person and so and so, or these people went to school together, whatever it is. Um, these people were arrested five years ago together and now they're out, or whatever right, that is. Right. You're building, building those target packages around those those people in order to fill out that uh, uh, that picture a little more clearly so you can go and, and take people out. Um, so just what every police department does all across America. Okay. So it's, so it's not as secret so, as we're led to believe. Uh, I, I didn't anyway. I just kicked in a bunch of doors. <laughs> okay. How do you stay grounded? You know, as far as like faith goes, you know, you, you're head over the head with the ugliness of the world on a regular basis. You're not now, but obviously when you were, you know, in combat, that type of stuff, you're seeing a lot of stuff that most people shouldn't have to. How, how did you deal with that? And how do you deal with it now? I think I didn't let it be a surprise. Um, you know, you're going into the military, you're going to special operations. Um, you're going downrange you're going to be in these uh situations you're going to do the job and if you're shocked by that i mean 
I don't know. I, I guess I just prepared myself. I didn't let any of that be a surprise. I'd studied okay. it my whole life. I knew what I was, was in for, for as much as you can be anyway. So, so I think there's a little bit of that. There's a little bit of pre-inoculation maybe there. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and then I also got very fortunate as well, because as you know, you can have the best plan possible. And if you're in a <laughs> static scenario, like say it's a training environment here, and we were to come up with a plan and it would be absolutely quote unquote, perfect. Every contingency covered. Okay. We're going to go in and we're going to do this mission. And, uh, and you do that and you had done all the right things, quote unquote, right things. Well, guess what? That enemy still gets a vote. And even though you did all the right things, uh, it can turn south in a heartbeat and you can lose guys in a heartbeat. Uh, And then you can feel that uh, survival is guilt like you talked about. You can feel that remorse. You can go back and think if only I'd done X, Y, or Z differently. Sure. And that's when you do everything, quote unquote, right. The opposite is also true. You can do everything, almost everything wrong. And for whatever reason, stumble through life a mission, whatever else. That is very true. Yes. Have nothing happen and bring everybody back, uh, yes. which is, which is the interest. I mean, you obviously want to prepare and, and go and cover all your contingencies and, and all that sort of a thing. But the point of that is that even when you do all the right things, things can still go south and, uh, and impact you going forward. And for whatever reason, I was very fortunate uh, in that the calls that I made downrange under fire worked out. Um, so I wake up every day and feel very fortunate that that is the case. Uh, and that whatever I have to deal with, like my, I have some spine surgery and I feel, I feel that every day. And uh, when I do feel that, I say, you know what, I'm so lucky that this is all I have to deal with. Uh, and I, I feel extremely fortunate. I have a couple of Facebook questions from my group here. Yeah, yeah. What was, Lois Page Simonson asks, I'd like to know what SEALs must do to qualify for the program. Then what physical mental training? Hollywood makes it, seems, makes it seem cruel. I want to know whether it's as bad as they depict in the feature films. I think we kind of went over that. You know, I don't know if I'd use the word cruel, would you? Yeah, I mean, it's uncomfortable. How about that? It's, uh, <laughs> they're making it extremely uncomfortable for you and making it very easy for you to self-select out and quit. And uh, the physical stuff, though, I maintain that any average high school athlete can make it through the program physically. Okay. Uh, if you're in the best shape, you're going to get in shape pretty dang quick once you get there. Uh, <laughs> and regardless of how great shape you're in, you're going to be uncomfortable. And uh, they're going to make you uh, do everything they possibly can to make you quit. And uh, when you sure. don't that's the guy we're looking for. So Gary Eddington asked a good question. Great interview. Please ask if he has experienced any fallout from his fellow team members or the community when he started writing. I have not, but there are probably people out there that just don't like you writing no matter what, or that don't differentiate between uh, nonfiction and fiction. Um, they're, uh, so they're, they probably exist, but everyone that I've talked to has been extremely supportive and loves the books. And Cool. Uh, but, you know, I'm not so blind to the fact that there aren't probably people out there that they just don't like it regardless. And you know, that's okay, too. Okay. Everybody gets to make their own choices in life and sure. uh, not follow my passion uh, because uh, I'm worried about what uh, some admiral might think. Or something sure. Like Alexandra Skywalker asks, any personal Thanks. favorites, inspirations among military thrillers? Man, Skywalker, that is red. Uh, I know, isn't that cool? Yeah, I grew up, you know, with, with this this foundation, uh, reading the masters, and they became my uh, professors in the art of storytelling, and that's mm. Tom 
Ian David Morrell and Nelson DeMille and AJ Cornell and JC Pollock and Mark Olden and Louis Lamour. And then later on uh, in life, of course, well, Stephen, Stephen Hunter, uh, of course, as well, huge influence. Uh, now we're friends. Same thing with David Morrell to be friends with some of these guys that I read growing up that I saw in the New York times list growing up that I aspired to be like growing up. It's uh uh, to me, I still, still brings a, a smile to my face that I can reach out and text them and call them and email them. And it's, uh, and then we have this, this relationship. Um, so cool. Uh, but then, yeah, later Daniel Silva, uh, right. As I started my, uh, my time in uniform, uh, then Vince Flynn and Brad Thor and now Mark Graney today. So all those, all those, uh, those, those authors are, uh, are influences and, and help move the, the genre forward. And have all been so supportive as well. Sure. Ralph Kern, my favorite British police officer, asks, what tropes really get on your nerves? Uh, well, I, I don't think I, I don't like talking about things that really get, get on my nerves. So, okay. You know, hey, everything's subjective. It's one of those things that's, uh, a, you know, what might be annoying to me is not annoying to somebody else. Somebody else might love it. So uh, <laughs> yeah, we already mentioned safety on the clock, and that's just. Okay, great. gotcha. That's Shannon. Shannon Hopkins work says as an American, there are a lot of us who would like to thank him for his service. Please thank him for us. A true hero. Thank you so much. I sincerely appreciate that. Thank you. You know, the, when I talked about doing this, all I've gotten is just such positive feedback. They like you, they love the military. You know, most people have good hearts. You know, I'm, I'm convinced of that. You know, the, if you go on social media, the news, whatever, they always portray like the very small percentage that yell the loudest, you know, that makes you feel bad where you got to remember the good. That's the way I look at it. Okay. Um, just a couple more questions. We'll finish this. Cause I know we are towards the end here. Terminalist outstanding book. You know, like I said earlier, I uh, got the audio. It was very good. What I liked about it was you infused all this stuff. Like, okay. Black Rifle uh, Coffee Company. You were talking about Benghazi a little bit. Um, backing your Land Cruiser into a parking space. Every cop I know backs their vehicles. They don't pull into a parking space. They back them in. Just little things like that really, I think, count. You know, is this purposeful or is it just who you are? It's, well, it's who I am and it's great. So it would be very unnatural for me not to uh, use products or to talk about how someone or does or does not park their their car um, because you can use the opposite as well. Uh, my protagonist happens to back his car in combat park, as we call it, uh, just like I do. And it was really cool in the series, the, the Chris Pratt series that's coming out on July 1st, that they took so much care to get the Land Cruiser right and to have it when it's parked outside the house, it's combat parked. Uh, his wife's isn't. So you, you, so you see that and even in you, you fans of the, of the novel will recognize it. And then people that actually park like that because they're, they're thinking about these things will be like, ah, look at that. Look what they did there. Um, so that was all very, very purposeful. And for me, these, uh, different products are ways to develop the character because, you know, sure. if you're a fan of Starbucks coffee, that tells me something about you. If you're a fan of black rifle coffee, that tells me something about you. Um, if you drink tea, if you, uh, you know, all those sorts of things. So I use these, all of these things as ways to develop the character, uh, sure. you know, what you, carry, whether you carry a, a cocked and locked 1911 in a leather holster, or you carry a striker fire, uh, you know, polymer frame pistol in a Kydex appendix carry, you know, like sure. it tells me something about you and your background, um, and your level of preparedness, um, so I use all those things as I would uh, use them myself as far as seeing them on someone and that telling me certain things about them as I evaluate them. Okay. 
Yeah, because you know it's like you you use the word suppressor instead of silencer, like you hear way too often. You use yeah. the word cartridge instead of bullet. You know, yeah. and doing a tactical reload. You know, these kind of things. It's like boing in my head. You know, like right away, I'm like, God, this guy's the real deal. You know, he he's yeah. totally he's knocking <laughs> it out of the park here. You know, yeah. so the suppressor one. You know, I, I do uh, this. I do mention uh, because Hiram Maxim's original patent says silencer on it. Um, yeah, in the military, we say suppressor because, you know, it's not silent. So I do, so right. I weave all that in as an education uh, as well. So I definitely, I like to to mention a few of those things uh, just to, just because it makes, I don't know, it makes sense. Yeah. Just a couple more things here. One, during combat, I don't know what movie it was that I saw and it may have been SEALs, maybe it wasn't, where you had like a special operator and there was some downtime and he had pictures of like his wife and kids up by his uh, rack. And he, he put those up when he would like FaceTime them or whatever. And then he'd take them down right away. And he said, I can't have them in my mind when I'm doing my job. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to be 100% focused on the task at hand. Yep. How true was that for you? Yeah, that was uh, that was exactly what I did. I didn't put them up uh, behind me when I had a FaceTime. We didn't really have that when I was okay. uh, I was downrange. I don't think I really did a video too many video calls with the family, um, so I didn't have them up at all um, because of that exact reason. Is that's what you owe the guys in your command? Your command is that you uh, have to be solely focused on the task at hand. That's what you owe them. That's what you owe their families. That's what you owe the mission, the country, um, as a as a leader. So, uh, sure. so I I one hundred percent understand that. So I know this is a this is a tough question, and as Jocko once said, you know this is like a Sophie's Choice uh, question. What are some of your favorite books that you like to give as gifts, or that you just they're like just ground you that you just it's a go to. It's like yeah, that's 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 my favorite, or like I said, that you want to give somebody as a gift. Yeah, my most gifted book is uh, Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer, written in 1968, and uh, follows two guys from right before World War One up to Vietnam, and it's really wow. a case study in leadership, and I would give it to uh, young SEALs as they were starting their time in uniform, and I'd write a letter and put that in the front that talked about why I was giving that to them, and then I have another letter that was sealed at the end that would be my take on what they read if they read the book, but they had to read the book to get to that letter at the end. What was the name of the book again? Once an Eagle by Anton Meyer. And uh, yeah, so that's my most gifted. And then I do on the the uh, nonfiction side of the house, uh, Three Felonies a Day by uh, Harvey Silverglade, um, which was written, I think, in 2009. I want to say I might be off by a year or two, but uh, but I do have a few of those stacked up that I give to people as well. Uh, it really talks about overreach of federal government, uh, how the uh, the American Bar Association came and tell you how many laws are on the books. Uh, they came and give you a number because there's so many. And sure. So many of the laws are, uh, have, a, have a touch point with another law uh, somewhere else or precedent. And anyway, it talks about, uh, about, about the overreach as far as uh, law goes and law fair. All right. Terminalist, when's that coming out? Where July do we first, find it? July first, coming to Amazon Prime Video, starring Chris Pratt, uh, and directed a few different directors. But the uh, the first episode is directed by Antoine Fuqua, who's incredible. And then uh, he remained there throughout the whole process, as the editing process. So overall, he's the he's the guy. Um, but yeah, coming to Amazon Prime Video, July first. July first, we'll be looking for it. And uh, did you pick that title, Terminalist? Oh yeah. I what was the runner-ups? Or I didn't have any. That was very. Oh, you were just yeah. spot on. 
That was from the beginning. It was very clear what that title had to be. Same thing with uh, True Believer. Had a different title for Savage Sun for a little bit, but then uh, switched it to Savage Sun. Um, and uh, and then, yeah, Devil's Hand was always the Devil's Hand. So I picked them all thus far. All right. Very good. If you could have a billboard with a quote or a saying or something along those lines that everybody could see, what would you want on there? You know, let's go with uh, the same thing I tell my kids. Uh, never miss an opportunity to make somebody's day. That's outstanding. And I think that's a great place to finish here. Where can people find more about you, your work, your books? Where do they go? Yeah, officialjackcar.com is the website. And from there, you can link to everything else. But at Jack Carr USA on the social channels, uh, I do the Instagram and Twitter. And then I think it reposts to Facebook every now and again. But I just re was was too much uh, uh, to handle for for one person. So I try to get back to as many people as I can to, to thank them for spending their time with me. Um, and uh, so that's kind of how I use social media. I want to add value to people's lives with uh, anything that I do, whether it's the books or the podcast or my any, any post on social media, which is why you don't see me just putting up some funny meme or something like that. Sure. But, much thought into a post as I do into any sentence in the, in the novels. So um, I take that responsibility seriously because we're never getting the time back. Um, okay. and, we're trusting with that time. So, um, but yeah, officialjackcar.com will take you where you want to go. Well, thank you again for being on the show. I can't thank you enough. Uh, thanks so much. Take care out there. My guest on the show today was New York Times bestselling author, podcaster, and former Navy SEAL, Jack Carr. It was truly an honor and privilege having you on the show today, sir. Well, that wraps up another episode of the Cops and Writers podcast. If you haven't done so yet, could you please take a minute and rate and review the show on Stitcher or Apple Podcasts? If you have already, thank you. As always, thank you for all of your support, and, of course, let's be careful out there.